Well, good morning. Thank you very much for uh, coming along this morning to this session. Um, it's either raining outside and you've got nothing else to do, or you care about this topic, so I'm going to assume it's the, the latter. And thank you, therefore, for caring about this issue. And as we've just been reminded, when we think about this issue, I'm sure virtually none of us are thinking about this issue in the abstract. Many of us, if not all of us, will have someone in our our close orbit who either identifies as LGBT plus or as same-sex attracted. And so when we think about this issue, we're not thinking about something that's abstract and hypothetical. We're, we're thinking about people that we know and love, people that are very near and dear to us. I'm very conscious of that, therefore, that, again, we are standing on, on very sensitive ground. But for some of us in the room, this, this issue is even closer to home than that. It's not just that we, we know someone for whom this is a personal issue. For some of us, this is part of our own experience and part of our own story. And some of you may well know that this has been a, a feature of my own journey as a, as a Christian myself. Uh, it took me a, a number of years to, to kind of come to terms with this. But I remember um, one day when I was 17, I was traveling back home from school. I was standing at the bus stop waiting to be picked up by the bus. And as I stood there, I remember thinking to myself, I think I'm gay. And it was the first time those thoughts had occurred to me. But the moment they entered my mind, I, I, I realized it was true. It was, it was obvious. I didn't have the romantic and sexual feelings for, for girls that my, my friends were constantly talking about. And I did have those feelings for some of my male friends. And so as I stood there at that bus stop, I, I kind of came to terms with that reality. And at that point, I was just beginning to apply to university, and I can remember thinking to myself, this could be something I explore when I go away and study. Um, I knew that the universities I was applying to had what in those days were LGB societies. And so I thought, well, this, I, could, I could run with this while I'm at university, and no one at home would need to know. Um, if you can remember those days long, long ago, this was, this was just before the internet, uh, if you can remember that, that dark time in our lives. And so it was entirely conceivable to be one thing at university and something else back home entirely. We weren't Instagramming every waking moment of our lives. And that was my plan. But in between standing at that bus stop and arriving at university, uh, as I mentioned on, on Monday night, if you were here, I was invited to a, a, a church youth ministry. I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember realizing for the first time that Christianity is not about God rewarding good people, but about God forgiving bad people. And I began to realize very quickly that I was one of the people for whom Jesus had come and died. And I remember sitting there on my 18th birthday, this is some years ago now, thinking, I want to follow this man, Jesus Christ. He died for me. He rose again for me. I can trust him with my life. And so as a new Christian about to head off to university, the, the big question, therefore, for me was this. What does Jesus think of sexuality? Having just come to terms with my own sexual feelings and, and now newly wanting to follow Jesus Christ, that was the big issue. What does he think about this, this whole matter? I had no idea what Jesus taught on it. I just knew that whatever Jesus said, I could trust. 
because I knew I could trust him. I knew wherever he led me, whatever that would look like, it would be the right thing for me. So let me share with you a couple of passages that have helped me, particularly in those early days, to kind of orient my thinking on this topic. A couple of passages in Matthew's Gospel, if you're able to to catch sight of that. If not, uh, just listen in. But if you've got a Bible to hand or on a device, then we're going to look at Matthew 15 and then Matthew 19. So do find your way to those passages. The first is Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is talking to the, the Pharisees and the scribes. And the key thing we need to know about them is that they believed in sin, but they thought of sin as being a bit like an infection. Uh, it was somewhere out there, and to, to remain spiritually uncontaminated, you had to avoid certain people and places and things that looked like they might be infected. So they had a pretty rigorous system of, of ceremonial washings, of things they did and did not touch, people that they would give a wide berth to. And Jesus says something to them in verse 19 that just devastates that way of thinking. Uh, listen to what Jesus says. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So Jesus is, again, this is, this is going to be devastating for them. He's saying sin is not out there to be avoided. Sin is in here to be confessed. So he's saying to these Pharisees, listen, you, you are half right. There is this infection called sin. But if you want to avoid sin, you have to avoid your own heart. Because it is the human heart that is the contagion for this uh, spiritual condition. Now, I want to suggest that is just as challenging to our culture today. Because the the kind of narrative that we are constantly told today is something like this in in the Western world. If you want to be you, if you want to flourish as you, then you have to look deep inside your heart and discover who you truly are. As you look inside your heart, you will find particular longings and impulses and instincts. That is the real you, and whatever that is, you have to embrace it. No one else can tell you who that is, only you can discover that. You have to embrace it, you have to live it out, and it's the job of the rest of us to celebrate it. And yet Jesus is saying here that if you look deep inside your heart, you are not going to find the solution to your angst. You're going to find the cause of it. Jesus is saying our hearts are not right. And there are various things that that evidence that. Jesus gives us a a sample of some of the, the symptoms of a heart that is not right. He says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder. Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now, that phrase, sexual immorality, uh, translates a a Greek word, porneia. It's where we get the word uh, pornography from. And it it literally means any sexual behavior outside of marriage. It's a kind of umbrella term. Umbrella is a good word to use. Uh, 
today from the, the sounds of things out there. Uh, any form of sexual behavior outside the covenant of marriage, Jesus is saying is sinful. He's just reiterating what the Old Testament had always been saying. And so that would include premarital sex, it would include adultery, which Jesus also lists separately, it would have included things like prostitution, and it would have included in Jesus' day, it would have obviously included any same-sex sexual behavior. And I wanted us to, to see this verse because there's a, there's a myth doing the rounds that Jesus was kind of neutral when it came to sexual ethics. He was just kind of tolerant. But the fact is, Jesus takes the Old Testament sexual ethics and far from loosening them, he intensifies them. To remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you even look with lust, you've committed adultery. He takes those external commandments and applies them to our hearts and to our attitudes. Now, Jesus doesn't name homosexuality. It wasn't an issue that was in contention in first century kind of Judaism. But it's very clear from teaching like this that he includes it in what he's saying. So that's the first thing I began to realize is that Jesus teaches that sex outside of marriage is sinful. It's not the only thing that's sinful. Jesus talks here about slander as well. But it is one of the things that is sinful. Now, a couple of chapters later is Matthew 19. And these words are are probably the most significant words in the Bible in terms of how we think about these issues. So please, uh, if you could find your way to Matthew 19 and verse 3. Again, the Pharisees are on the scene. They come to Jesus in verse 3. They have a question for him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, they're asking that not to learn from Jesus, but to try to trick him. Uh, they're trying to get him into a gotcha moment. Uh, this was a live issue at the time. Some rabbis were saying literally that, that you could ditch your wife for any reason. Uh, one rabbi even taught that if your wife burnt your meal, if that was sufficiently irritating to you, then fine, divorce her. And so they, they place this question before Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They wait until they're in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That is the, the terrain of uh, King Herod. And so they wait until they're in King Herod's patch to ask this question. Do you remember King Herod had John the Baptist arrested because John spoke against Herod's sexual ethics? So the Pharisees know what they're doing. If, if Jesus gives the wrong answer here, they can just phone up Herod and say, hey, do you have another platter in your kitchen cupboard? Because we've got someone else here who is critical of your sexual ethics. Well, Jesus answers their question in verse 4. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus is taking them back to Genesis 1, verse 27. Uh, Jesus continues, verse 5, and said, and now quotes Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man 
separate. Okay, now there's a number of things Jesus is doing in this answer. The first thing he's doing is, I think he's mocking the Pharisees. Um, they, were, they were proud of how thoroughly they knew the Scriptures. Uh, they learned swathes of our Old Testament off by heart. Uh, passages that we might struggle to read once, they had memorized. Just imagine that. And yet Jesus says to them, have you not read, and then quotes Genesis 1. It's as if he's saying, listen, when you, when you studied the Scriptures, when you did your, your big kind of project on studying the Scriptures, did you make it as far as, I don't know, page 1? Did you make it to Genesis 1? Did you get that far? But notice what else Jesus is doing. He goes back to Genesis 1 and talks about he who created them. And Jesus says there are two things the Creator did. Uh, Look carefully at verses 4 and 5. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, "Therefore therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now if you go back and look at who it is that said, therefore a man will leave his father and mother, it's the author of Genesis. That's the narrator of Genesis. And Jesus is saying, listen, the narrator of Genesis is the creator. That's just one example of of Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament being inspired by God. But it means that when Jesus goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, he's not going back to the best of ancient human wisdom. He is going back to the Creator's blueprint for us. This is how we have been created to live. And so the stakes are high. This is not something we can negotiate. So what do we learn from the Creator's blueprint? Well, firstly, Jesus makes a connection between the fact that we've been made male and female and the reality of marriage. Okay, he's asked a question about divorce. He, he says, in effect, you're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage. And you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand gender. Jesus says we've been made male and female and therefore we have this thing called marriage. God has made us male and female and for this reason a guy will leave his parents and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So Jesus is saying that marriage is predicated on our difference, our sexual difference as male and female. Now, he's not commenting on the the capacity or otherwise of people of the same sex to have committed romantic partnerships. He's not commenting on the strength of feelings. He's commenting on the type of union that results. And Jesus is saying that the male-female union uniquely is a one-flesh union. And it is deeply significant uh, Jesus isn't being arbitrary in saying this. Um, as we look back on the, on the wider storyline of Scripture, that the male-female union is especially meaningful. So just think again back to the account of creation. In Genesis 1, we have the, the six days of creation, the creation of, of the whole universe. It's all, 
wide-angle lens stuff. It's epic, it's sweeping, it's dramatic. There's all kinds of special effects and CGI. We've got the world and species and ecosystems. Everything is, is huge. And then in Genesis 2, we suddenly find ourselves in a garden and a guy and a girl get together. And the question we really should be asking is, why are we here? Given this massive overture we've just had at the beginning of the Bible, why are we suddenly in a garden with these two? And the answer is that this man and this woman were literally made for each other. They belong together. And their union becomes a picture of what the whole Bible is about. That actually the union of the man and the woman in marriage is a picture of the union of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. That is the story of the Bible. And so throughout the the Old Testament, God likens his relationship to his people to a marriage. He describes himself repeatedly as the groom. He's not just the divine authority. He is the bridegroom who's come to woo and win a people to himself. They're not just his followers. They are his bride. Uh, Sadly and, and frequently, God describes them as his unfaithful and wayward bride. In the New Testament, when Jesus arrives, one of the first titles Jesus calls himself is the bridegroom. He says, I am that divine husband you have been waiting for. And so Paul, when speaking to wives and husbands in Ephesians 5, can suddenly step back and say, guys, I'm I'm actually talking about Jesus and the church. That's what marriage is ultimately about. Our earthly marriages are a picture, a signpost of that ultimate marriage that exists between Jesus and his bride, the church. And of course, the book of Revelation reaches its climax with the wedding supper of the Lamb and his bride. The the heavenly city coming down, adorned as a bride for the husband. And so throughout the Bible, marriage is a picture of the gospel. And that's why the Christian understanding of marriage has the particular shape that it does. It it has to be between a, a man and a woman because it is between two fundamentally different parties. It is picturing the, the union of Jesus and the church. The union of a man and a man or a woman and a woman can only picture Jesus and Jesus or the church and the church. But through the whole Bible, the union of the man and the woman is a picture of the thing God is doing in the universe. He's making a people for his son, Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus talks about this one flesh union. In verse 10, the disciples respond by saying, well, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Not the first or last time a group of men have got cold feet. Okay, they hear what Jesus is saying and they say, do you know what, that that sounds a little bit like commitment. Maybe we'll give this marriage thing a miss. And the moment they question getting married, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, maybe just live together for a bit first and see how that goes, or try before you buy. No, the moment they question getting married, Jesus says, 
He starts talking about eunuchs. He talks about people who are celibate. And so as far as Jesus is concerned, the only godly alternative to a male-female marriage is to be single and sexually abstinent. So I began to realize, even early on in the Christian life, that Jesus says sex outside of marriage is sinful. He says marriage is between a man and a woman. And he says the only godly alternative to marriage is to be celibate. Now, I don't need to tell you that those are massively countercultural things to believe in our own day. But I also need to tell you that Jesus' view of, of sex and marriage has been countercultural in every single culture. It challenges and humbles all of us. It's not how any of us naturally lines up. But it left me as a fairly new believer with a, with a significant decision to make. Now I knew what Jesus said. That The question was this. Do I, do I continue with Jesus or do I seek sexual fulfillment? Okay, I knew I couldn't do both at the same time. And so I made the decision and continue to make the decision to follow Jesus rather than to seek to fulfill my own sexual desires. A decision that many in our, in our own culture today would say is absolutely crazy. It, it just sounds absurd. It might even be bad for you. Harmful to do that. So why did I decide it? Well, a couple of things. I mentioned part of this last night. Uh, the first reason I made this decision is, is because of who Jesus is. And it's a frustrating answer for, for some people, but I, I have to say to some of my non-believing friends, listen, you're not going to understand the decision I've made in this area of life unless you understand who Jesus is to me. Because when you get who Jesus is to me, you get why I would follow him, even if this is the cost. If Jesus really is who he claims to be, it's a no-brainer to follow him. As I said yesterday evening, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He's more committed to our ultimate joy than we are. And if that is the case, you would be an idiot not to follow him. Even when following him might be hard. But I also began to realize that what Jesus teaches here is going to be challenging for all of us. Because what Jesus teaches us about human sin is that it, it taints every area of life. And therefore there is no area of life where we are everything that we should be. There's no area of life where we can say, oh, well, I don't need Jesus for that. Which is another way of saying that when it comes to sexuality, every single one of us is broken and fallen and disordered. Every single one of us is fallen in our sexuality. Or putting it another way, there is, there is no one who is straight. Let's please ditch that language. All of us are skewed by sin. Some of us are skewed in the direction of, of same-sex attraction, others are skewed in, in different ways. But whether you are attracted to men or women or both, you are sinful in your sexuality. 
And therefore, for any of us to follow Jesus just in this one area of life is going to involve saying no to certain sexual desires. For all of us, following Jesus in this area of life is going to involve repentance. It's going to be challenging. It's not the case that Jesus says to to heterosexual people, well done, brilliant work, please continue. And he says to, to everybody else, yeah, I'm really sorry, but there's some problems here. You're just going to have to kind of make some sacrifices. No, Jesus' teaching on sexuality humbles and challenges all of us, or you haven't understood it. But more than that, one of the things I, I quickly began to realize is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't want my sexuality. Jesus wants my heart. Jesus wants everything from all of us. So Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 that if, if anyone would come after me, and the key word there is anyone, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. In other words, discipleship for any human being is going to involve saying a profound no to self. And a profound yes to Jesus. Jesus goes on to say that if you lose your life for me, you will gain it. Okay, I love Jesus' realism. He's not a good salesman. He wants us to know in advance of following him that there are going to be times when following him feels like it's killing you. There are going to be times when it feels as though Jesus is taking your very life from you. And yet the extraordinary paradox of the Christian faith is that actually as we yield our life to Jesus, we gain it. As I deny self, I become my true self. I don't cease to be me the more I say no to me and the more I say yes to Jesus. Actually, I become the person God originally intended me to be. So let me just sum up with a a couple of comments. If you think the cost of discipleship is too high for LGBT people, you think it's too high for anyone, and I doubt you're counting the cost of discipleship in your own life. But secondly, Jesus says, however high the cost of discipleship is, it is always abundantly worth it, even in this life. We always receive back from Jesus far, far more than we ever leave behind for him. So let me end with a a verse from Mark uh, chapter 10. If you want to look it up, you can. If not, do listen in. Mark 10 verse Uh, 28 to 30. It's one of the lesser-known promises of Jesus. I don't know why it's lesser-known. It's remarkable. Uh, We've just had the rich young man who's walked away from Jesus sad. He wasn't willing to leave behind the things Jesus was calling him to. 
And Peter, ever the emotionally intelligent one, says in verse 28, hey, we've left everything to follow you. You know, lucky you to have us here, Jesus. You know, we're, we're the A team of, of disciples. And Jesus makes this amazing promise in response. He says to Peter, truly I say to you. When Jesus says, truly I say to you, that's his way of saying, this bit really matters. This bit is going to be one of the things someone puts on a poster one day. Okay, it's that, that kind of saying. So Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus assumes we will leave things to follow him. Jesus assumes the most costly things to leave will be relational and familial. Uh, there are some people for whom allegiance to Jesus does mean leaving behind their kin, leaving behind their homes and their own, their own kind of family networks. That's not the cost of discipleship for all of us. It is the cost for some people. And Jesus' response to that prospect isn't to say, yeah, it's really going to suck, but don't worry, you get heaven. No, Jesus looks even at that kind of cost and says, even in this life, you will receive back from me far, far more than you leave for me. What we leave behind, Jesus will replace in godly kind and in far, far greater measure. And again, Jesus casts this in relational and familial terms. We will receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and, yep, a side order of persecutions, whether you order that or not, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is promising us family. So let me close with a, with a question to, to challenge all of us. I want you to think about the church that you belong to, the fellowship that you, you meet with, whatever kind of church that is. According to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, if someone from the gay community came to faith and ended up at your church, and in this scenario, they, for various reasons, they had to leave behind their previous community in order to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 10 that that person should be able to say, as a result of being in your church, they should be able to say, do you know what? I now have more family in my life than I had before. I have more community in my life than I had before. I, had more, I have more intimacy in my life than I had before. And my question to you is this. Looking at your own church, do you think someone could say that? Would that be the case? If the answer is, I don't really think so, then we're calling Jesus a liar. If the answer is yes, 
not perfectly, but, but truly, they would find an abundance of family within our church group, then we are living proof that it is never a bad deal to follow Jesus. That the gospel always is good news, whoever it is aimed at. And specifically that it is good news for our gay friends and our gay family members. There's obviously a, a vast amount more that, that needs to be said. Um, I've scratched the surface, I hope, it, I hope sort of usefully. But there is far, far more to be said. We're going to have a, a time of, of Q&A now. I have written a book called Is God Anti-Gay, which is, is on the bookstore, so that I hope will, will help you. But as we go into a, a time of questions, um, uh, just while you're, you're scribbling down questions, I hope you've got a, a piece of paper and a pen to hand. If you don't, do, do steal off a neighbour when they're not looking. Um, I mentioned my book is God Anti-Gay. That's on the bookstore. Other useful resources, because people often ask about this, and I've not checked which of these are on the bookstore. Um, but there's a great book uh, by a dear friend of mine called Ed Shaw called The Plausibility Problem, which is looking at the ways in which we've unwittingly made the Christian sexual ethic look implausible by the way that we've, we've kind of made our church culture. So I'd recommend that as well. Glyn Harrison, I think, has been to this neck of the woods over the last couple of years. He's written a, a very useful book called uh, A Better Story, God, Sex and Human Flourishing. So Glyn Harrison, A Better Story, Ed Shaw, The Plausibility Problem, and I'm sure there are some other very useful resources on the bookstore. That's, that's our advert break, which I hope has given enough time to get a couple of questions in. Okay, so I think we'll, um, but I'll ad hoc, hoc this a bit, but this question um, fits into where we've just been um, visiting Sam. So what would you say to a gay person saying it's unfair that straight Christians are permitted to express sexual desire in marriage, but it's not fair that gays cannot? Thank you for that question. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. Um, an, in, an entirely understandable question, a very serious one. Um, I'd want to say a couple of things. I think the first is that not every straight person does get to express their sexuality. Um, I, I can think of many people I know in my own church who are uh, single not through choice, uh, but for one reason or another, in many cases, unrelated to, to sexuality entirely. And so this is, this is not something that is uniquely a cost borne by those who are, are gay or same-sex attracted. So it's not the case that everyone who is straight gets to express their sexuality. I think I would also say it's not necessarily the case that everyone who is gay can't. Uh, the, the choice Jesus gives all of us is heterosexual marriage or celibacy. Um, I know a number of people who, are, who would say that they are are same-sex attracted, and yet who've met someone who is the exception to the rule. Um, I know a number of friends who have found someone of the other sex that they've, they've found they unusually are attracted to, and are happily and, and healthily married. Uh, one of those friends is, is called Sean. He's often spoken about this publicly, so I, I feel able to share his story. Sean is married to Gabby. Sean would say he's still attracted to, to men, by and large, rather than to women. But he, he said that actually, that when he first met Gabby, that the two of them 
immediately had a good rapport, a very deep friendship followed, and they felt there was sufficient romantic and sexual attraction for them to, to be able to marry, and they're very happily married. And Sean's comment was this, he said, it turns out I didn't need to be attracted to women, I just needed to be attracted to Gabby. Which I think is, is biblical. There's, there's no verse in the Bible that says I'm meant to be generally attracted to people of the other sex. The Bible says that if I'm married, I'm to be faithful to and sexually satisfied by my spouse. And if I'm not married, I'm meant to be chaste. And that is the, the situation for all of us. So I wouldn't want to presume that there's, a, there's an unfairness here. All of us have either the gift of, of marriage to someone of the other sex or the gift of singleness. Both are gifts. Both are good. Both need to be honoured and celebrated in the church. Not everyone who is heterosexual gets married. Not everyone who is not heterosexual doesn't. So I hope that, I hope that helps. But no one, is, no one is missing out on the goodness of God. And all of us, if we're believers, get the ultimate reality that marriage is designed to point to, which is the marriage with Jesus Christ as, as being part of his bride. I think one of the problems we've had is that we have, I think in an in a unhealthy way, we have elevated marriage and sort of made it the implicit goal of the Christian life and that the chief means by which we fulfill ourselves. And so as I find myself saying to, to many people, if you are looking to marriage to fulfill you, you are not going to be easy to be married to. Okay, your marriage is not meant to fulfill you. It's meant to point to the thing that will fulfill you, which is your relationship with Jesus. So if I have that ultimate reality, I'm not ultimately missing out by remaining unmarried. Jesus himself was unmarried and he was the most complete and fully human person who ever lived. Great, Sam. Um, just collating a number of these and trying to get some themes because... I, I don't think we're going to get through them all this morning, but um, let's, let's pick up the theme um, just again, thinking about are you born gay or is being gay a choice that's made or how would you interpret? Thank you. Um, thank you very much for that. Um, I'm not sure it's either of those things. Uh, whether we're born gay or not, I don't really know. Um, I don't think there's any scientific consensus that we are. Um, I don't think it's a choice either. I didn't wake up and think, oh, I'm, I'm going to decide to be attracted to men and not attracted to women. I don't think that's how our attractions work. We, as we grow up, we find ourselves attracted to certain types of people and not to other types of people. So there's, there's not... I've not met anyone who has said that their sexuality is a, is a conscious choice. Um, so whether it's something we may have some kind of disposition towards from birth or not, I don't know. But it's, it's something that, I guess, reveals itself as time goes on. And I don't think the answer to that question affects our Christian understanding either way. Because we, we, we know from Scripture that we're, we're, born, we're born as sinners, aren't we? Not a very comfortable truth, not a very, a very flattering one, but... That's what Jesus meant when he said you need to be born again. Okay, you didn't get it right the first time. And so all of us have been born with dispositions that are not godly. Certain, all of us have, have certain desires that are natural to us, but which are not pleasing to God. 
So I can't just say, well, because I desire this and it's innate to me, I can't say that is how God has made me. Okay, I, I'm, I'm very naturally irritable. Like I never had to, to learn how to be irritable. I'm just very naturally irritable. But I can't read off from my irritability, well, God has made me irritable, and therefore you have to accept my irritability. We need to, to remember our, our origins in both Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3. We are created in the image of God and we're fallen. And so my, my sexual temptations are not a sign of how God has made me. They're a sign of how sin has distorted me. And that's the case for every single one of us. Sorry, I, I'm okay. answering two questions yeah. at once yeah, there, but sure. I hope that helps. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we just want to press into that sort of space a wee bit more. Um, this is um, uh, a question about, my sister-in-law is a lesbian, and it's breaking my heart. Um, we can't tell my family. What do we do? I'm sure that, that is a, a, not a unique scenario. Many of us will have close family members who are identifying in that kind of way and making that the way they want to, to live and, and to be. Um, I think when, it, when it's close friends or when it's family, um, we never want that person to doubt how much they mean to us. So however we choose to articulate our beliefs and at what point we decide to do that, and that's a wisdom issue, we must never allow the articulation of our beliefs to give that person any reason to think we don't think the world of them which means we need to embody both grace and truth. Jesus, we're told in John 1, was full of grace and truth. So therefore, grace and truth actually go together in Christ. We can't have one without the other. If we think we have one without the other, we have neither. And so in all our dealings, we need to embody grace and truth. The, the truth we share should never imply that we're looking down on someone, that we are judging them, that we think of ourselves as better than them, and that they are not loved by us. So somehow we, we need to work out how to express the fact that we are called to unconditional love. We're not called to unconditional affirmation. In terms of why we... I, I don't know that this particular situation. Um, I'm curious that you feel you can't tell your family... Um, may well be because you think your, your kids are of a certain age where they're not ready to, to know that yet. I actually think it's a good thing to talk to children about. Um, I want children to be aware of the, the world in which they live and not to feel threatened by that, but also not to feel superior to it. So we need to find, I think, some way of explaining to our, our children what we believe God has said on these issues not in a way that makes our children little Pharisees in the, in the sense that the, the world out there is bad, but we've got it right. But actually in a way that expresses, this is what God says, and actually all of us have fallen short of this. Even, even your own parents. We've got this wrong at times. And there are many other people who, who believe different things to us and, and live in different ways. But I want our kids to know and to love and not to feel threatened by our LGBT friends and, and relatives. So I would, if it, unless this person is asking for it to be a secret, I think it's a good thing for the family to know about. I'm not commenting on that particular case, but, but more generally. Okay, Sam. 
Great. And if we just um, maybe expand the, the uh, perspective a wee bit, uh, the question here is about what about a practicing gay uh, couple who want to be part of the church? Um, how do we be loving and welcoming to that couple without compromising our beliefs? Thank you. And, and I gather this is, a, this is a live issue at the moment in, in is it the Presbyterian denomination has been discussing this recently. Uh, my answer would be, and it, it varies, different churches have different ways they do things like membership, so I'm not going to prescribe what it should look like, but the principle is this. What would you do with a heterosexual unmarried couple? And I think you should approach it in the same way. It's, this is another instance of people living in a, in a way that is, is not in obedience to Christ, but they want to come to church, they want to be involved in church. So what is the... What is the what would you do in that situation? And I think it should be the same. And my, my concern is sometimes there are churches that seem fine with cohabitation between heterosexual people, but all of a sudden get very particular when it comes to people in, in gay relationships. And if we have one standard for one kind of immorality and a different standard for another one, that's, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that that's homophobic. So whatever we do with, with people who are still unrepentant about certain sin, we've got to be consistent. Otherwise, actually, it's a, it's a really poor witness. So I think however you would handle a different kind of sexual sin, in 99% of the time is going to be how you would handle this, this type of situation. Okay. Um, and then thinking about um, the issue of legislation... A question about um, what kind of guidance would you give on the subject of the state legislating? Yeah, well, we've we've had that back in the UK, in uh, England, certainly where I, where I come from. Um, I think I, I want to again balance a couple of things. Um, as a as a Christian and a citizen, I want my country to have laws that I know will be a blessing to my neighbours, and so I see it as an expression of love of neighbour to argue for laws that I think will be for the common good. Uh, and that would include, I, I think, the, the biblical definition of marriage. What I don't want people to think is I'm just trying to impose my ethics on somebody else. And sometimes the, the, the tone and posture that Christians have had going into these discussions has implied we're angry with everybody else for not being Christian. And that's not a gospel posture. What I do think we need to do is to say, listen, I, I know that you're not a Christian. I'm not expecting you to agree with something just because it's in a book that I believe in and you don't. But let me try and commend to you why I think this is going to be good for all of us and why I think this is actually this is wise for us in, in a way that will actually make sense to someone who's secular. I think if we can't explain this issue in a way that appeals to secular people, we're probably not going to get very far. But it won't do just to say, listen, because of what I believe, this should be the law of the land. That, that actually gives a horrible impression. So I think we, we do want to enter these discussions, but with the right kind of tone and with the right kind of posture. Okay, great, Sam. Um, and also just to, and to lose really graciously when we lose. I think, actually, I think one of the great opportunities for witnesses when this legislation goes against us actually is to, is to be very, very gracious when we lose. Okay, um, another one um, which 
um, I, I guess, comes from uh, perhaps some of the frustration that we've talked about earlier. Um, being gay uh, is not a choice, I guess, question mark. Um, if it's how God made you, how is it a sin? I think I answered that earlier. So we're all born with, with certain desires and propensities that are, that are sinful. We can't pin those on God. Um, so I can look at how God has made me and I can look at how sin has distorted me. And what I can't do is, is take my sin and blame that on God. Okay. Um, in terms, then, again, thinking about uh, being a welcoming community and, and one that, um, I guess, accepts people without conditions, one of the questions here was, what would that actually look like? Again, I think it would be useful to say, well, what does it normally look like? If, if it's not the issue of sexuality, what does it normally look like? Everyone who walks through our doors for the first time at church is a sinner. Uh, some of them may be Christians who've just decided to come visit our church. Many may be unbelievers who, for one reason or another, want to come along and, and have a look. Some of them might be people who think they're Christians. But our, our normal response probably isn't to stop them on the steps of the church and, and talk to them about, about the sin that seems most visible in their lives to us. So I think what we want to do is, is welcome everyone, whoever's wanting to come to church with whatever background and experience I hope our response is, it is great to have you here. Um, this, is, this is what we are about as, as church. We're about Jesus Christ. The one condition for coming here is that you've got to not be sorted. Okay, because Jesus is not for sorted people. He's for messy people. So we would love you to come along and find out who we believe Jesus is. We would love to do anything we can to help you understand who Jesus is. And what I'm therefore saying is we, we want to start at the centre and, and show people that the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means, and eventually get from the centre to their lives now. What I don't want to do is start with their lives now and try and get from that to the death of Jesus. Does that make sense? So let's start by welcoming everyone and saying, listen, the thing you most need to understand about us is the love that Jesus has shown to us in his death and resurrection. And we would love to help you understand that and make your own response to it. Okay, and we're coming to the end here, so I'm going to ask um, there's a couple of questions here that are, are, are being replicated a number of times. So um, if a couple came to our church of a, in a same-sex relationship and then became Christians, um, what advice would you give them in terms of that relationship? <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll kind of give you a second question to see if we can kind of join them together a wee bit there, but there's another situation. I have two dear lesbian friends who love God and each other, and they find that they can't live apart as it's breaking their hearts. Um, is it just the case that they don't love Jesus enough? Thank you. These are hard issues, aren't they? <laughs> These are the easy ones, too. Um, I think, I think we're out of time next now, week. so I can't, I can't know. Um, now, listen, when it, when it comes to the, the example of a gay couple coming to faith, um, friends, this happens all the time. Uh, God is at work, and there is a harvest among the gay community. It's why it breaks my heart when churches are kind of standoffish towards the gay community. Actually, the, the, the fields are white unto harvest, so gay people come to Christ. Uh, in as much as we think that's an issue or a problem, shame on us. This is, this is just a wonderful gift of God to us. 
which has its complexities, as, as everyone does. What I would suggest in, in that particular example is, again, that the principle I'm wanting to operate from is whenever we come to faith with messy relational baggage, which most of us these days do, the question is, what is the, the healthy biblical footing I can place that existing relationship onto? In the case of, a, of an unmarried heterosexual couple, sometimes the healthy biblical footing for them going forwards will be to get married. In the case of a same-sex couple, that won't, be, that won't be appropriate. And so I'm guessing that the healthy biblical footing for their relationship to go on moving forwards will be friendship, deep friendship, I, I trust, rather than... I thought they were clapping me for a minute then. Um, <laughs> rather than something that is romantically and sexually expressed. So if they're wanting to take Jesus seriously and to follow his teaching they're going to have to reconfigure their relationship. I hope not end it entirely, but I hope to think, okay, it's not going to be appropriate for us to be romantically and sexually involved, but actually we can be deep friends. That Deep friendship is a, is a good thing in the Scriptures. And so they'll need to think about what that will have to look like and what that will involve, and it will involve not sharing a bed. They may feel we can, we can still live under the same roof and, and be okay with that. They may think, actually... That's probably a bit too difficult. We might need for one of us to move somewhere in the, in the nearby proximity. Um, it gets more com complicated when there, are, when there are children involved. But this is, this is where Mark 10 comes in again because it can look as if, oh, we're just tearing up a family. If Mark 10 is true, that, that couple are getting more family, not less. If they are in a part of the world where they have been legally married, I think part of discipleship will be to get divorced. Um, I'm not a fan of divorce, but theologically, they're not married. Legally, they are. Theologically, they're not. And therefore, I, I don't worry about, in that instance, commending divorce. Um, so I think a big thank you to Sam for this morning.